Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Rob, in case you don't know me, and I gotta say, that MC is good looking. So, and godly, and she would go out with me. You can't beat that. <laughs> I gotta tell you those uh, two stories that Jessica shared. Um, the one with the cookies was amazing. She went, baked cookies, went out into her neighborhood, and raised uh, about $150. That's pretty cool. And then the other, uh, the, the two children that gave up their trampoline money, I heard it was uh, close to $200. So they were almost there. And, uh, you know, they just felt compelled to give to the Lord. I, I just find that amazing. Uh, God will show uh, forth his glory through children even, right? Isn't that cool? All right, if you would, open your Bibles with me. Genesis chapter 15. And uh, if you do not have a copy of the Bible, we, we regularly make our way through the Bible, God's Word. There's a Bible in the chair underneath uh, the chair in front of you. It's a blue Bible. And if you're looking for the book of Genesis, it's the easiest book in the Bible to find. It's the first book of the Bible. So you just flip right open. Genesis chapter 15. How are you turning there? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever had uh, second thoughts about something? I'm sure you have. I'm sure that all of us have had second thoughts about something in life. I, I've been recently reading a, a, bi, a biography by Doris Goodwin. It's called Team of Rivals about the life of Abraham Lincoln. And it's an interesting view, perspective of his life. It's, it's about how he had built a cabinet team around him of rivals that he was competing against politically and forged them into a team that would lead the nation through our toughest times and uh, would also help us to be freed of that curse of slavery that was upon us. So it's interesting when you're reading biographies how oftentimes you realize how you have flatly characterized some of our nation's heroes. You're all about their successes, and, and we tend to just view them through that lens, so we, we don't really have a round view of them. But they were people just like you and me. They had chinks in their armor. Uh, I find it interesting that one of Abraham Lincoln's big chinks in his armor when he was a young man was that he was socially awkward around women. It's pretty crazy when you think about it. I mean, he could get around a group of men, he could keep them entertained through the night with his uncanny ability to tell stories, but then you put him in the same room with a dating prospect and he couldn't even complete a sentence. I mean, poor guy, right? Well, then comes along Mary Todd. She seems to be linking saving grace. She was brilliant, politically involved, all around charming. He was enamored with her. Uh, they say that he stole her away from Stephen Douglas at a dance, and uh, they started dating and eventually got engaged. But the deeper that the relationship became, the colder Lincoln's feet grew. That's right. He was having second thoughts. He wondered if he really loved her. He started feeling attraction for another woman. He believed that a marriage would stifle his political star from rising. And so, during their engagement, Lincoln breaks it off with Mary Todd. Interestingly enough, Lincoln realizes his mistake when he's writing a letter to his closest friend, Joshua Speed. You see, Joshua's going through the same problem. He's a 
engaged, he's about to get married, he's wondering if this marriage would endure if he was to follow through. And Lincoln essentially says to him, you know, Joshua, you can't really romanticize everything, and you can't think that the world's going to be perfect. And as he's penning this letter, Lincoln realizes that he needs to take his own advice. And so, as history would prove, he goes back, he asks Mary for her hand in marriage, and they stay together through the course of his life. Second thoughts, common feature of life. You've had it with your career. You might have had it in your dating life. You might have had it on your educational pathway. Maybe you've had theological second thoughts. Can I trust God with my life? How can I know that God will deliver on his word? And if you've ever had thoughts like this, if your faith has ever wobbled, well, you need to take confidence in heart that there are men like Abraham, the father of faith in the Bible, that experienced the same types of things. And as we're going to look at our story this morning, we're going to see that God meets him in his place of questioning and concern and doubt and God's willing to meet you in the same place too. So if you would, let's look at the first three verses of this chapter, chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliza of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Now, if you've been reading along in this story, you know that this is just quite dramatically out of place. In Genesis chapter 14, Abram takes 318 men, demonstrating nerves of steel, and he faces off against this big king guy, Ketterloamer, who we've called Big K. He comes into the camp at night, routes the armies, he gets Lot and all the possessions. He comes back and he has a conversation with the king of Sodom and says, I don't need any of your treasure. I don't even need a shoestring from the likes of you. But now we see in this story that Abram is all tied up in knots. Why? Well, it's often been said that letdown following victory is a great part of the human experience. Maybe his fear or his concern had something to do with the fact that he thought that Big K was not going to take this humiliating defeat lying down. I mean, you can just think of what would run through your mind. You're, you're laying your head down at night. You're projecting a year forward. Maybe one night you're going to lay your head down to sleep and be awoken to the footfalls of soldiers or the glare of the glowing torch outside of your tent. And I got to tell you, that would be fear-inducing. But when you look at Abram's response to God, the struggle isn't whether or not this king would come back. The struggle is more personal. It's more deep and raw. It's a struggle that he's carried with him in his entire adult life. He wanted more than anything to be able to hold a precious son in his hands. What good was success, renown, treasure, if he didn't have someone to pass his legacy onto? And hadn't God promised him descendants and... and, and, and Weren't they supposed to be here, and where are they? Well, don't miss the significance of these second thoughts. 
Abram's fears are centered on the fact that he is questioning whether or not God is going to deliver on his good promises. Uh, this is what is at stake. Either God delivers or God doesn't, and God promised something big. He promised a multitude of descendants. He also promised this good land that he's dwelling in. So he's sitting alone in the quietness of the dark, and his mind is starting to go into those dark places. And I'm sure your mind's gone there before. Well, didn't, didn't God say? I want to trust that he's going to deliver on his promises, but I'm not seeing the cards line up. Sarah's post-menopause. That child ship is sailing. What is going on? I take uh, great comfort in knowing that in the midst of our pain, God is present and willing to dialogue. If you read this account, you'll notice a structural pattern that suggests a dialogue, a, a back and forth conversation. Look at how it goes. It goes something like this. Abram, or the Lord promises something to Abram. That's verses 1 and 7. And then Abram confides his fear to God. And you see that in verses 2 and 3 in verse 8. And then God gives Abram an object lesson to reassure him of his good intention. And that's verses 4 and 5, and then verses 9 through 21. So if you've ever thought to yourself, well, God's not interested in dialogue, then you're missing one of the most significant and comforting realities in all of the Bible. You see, God is a conversational God. He is not distant. He's not aloof to our burdens. He doesn't just talk at us and we don't just talk at him. He is a loving God who wants us to take our fears and, and lay them down before him. And when, when Abram was in uh, fear before, he ran down to Egypt, but now he's doing the right thing. He, he's bringing his questions, his concerns, his fears, his anxieties before the Lord and notice that he dialogues with God appropriately. I, I like what we see in verse 2. Abram expresses his complaint, O Lord God, and some of the translations capture the force a little better. O sovereign Lord. Abram's not venting at one of his buds. Sometimes people will give advice like, oh, you can say anything you want to God. He's got big enough shoulders. He can handle it. And I got to tell you, just chuck that. Throw it out the window. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe. He deserves our reverent speech. And Abram acknowledges, even while he has questions, that God is in control. I mean, can you do those two things at the same time? Can you have fears and apprehensions and, and worries and maybe even doubts and yet still acknowledge that God's in control? Yeah, Abraham is in this passage. You know, often when we are struggling with second thoughts, it has something to do with a gap in our awareness or understanding about the nature or the character of God. So A.W. Tozer said this profound point, whatever comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Abram knew things about God, but he needed a bigger vision of who God is so that God could comfort him and come along and help him in his time of need. And that's what God does in verses 1 through 5. He tells him two things about himself that he needs to know more profoundly. Uh, so the first thing he says is, I am 
what you need. I want to read verse 1 to you from a different translation. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. When you are struggling with pain or fear or questions, is God enough for you? Ray Pritchard notes that, that God's answer to fear is not an argument and it's, it's not a formula, it's a person. God reveals himself to us in the Bible as I am. And yes, that has something to do with God's eternal existence, but it's also a statement of God's presence and his comfort and his care with us when we're going through things. In fact, you can always uh, think of it like this. He is always what you need in the moment. I am your strength. I am your courage. I am your health. I am your hope. I am your supply. I am your deliverer. I am your forgiveness. I am your joy. I am your future. God is what you need. He's all-sufficient. He's all-supplying, even when you are lacking something. Another thing that we see in the text is that God says of himself, I am the God who created the stars. So when Abram questions if Eliezer would be the heir, God answers in a very powerful way. Look at verses four and five. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. So that that expression in verse 4 is an emphatic no in the Hebrew. He's essentially saying, No, Eleazar, it'll be a son from your own body a son from your own DNA. And he's reminding Abraham of of a confession that he made to the king of Sodom back in chapter 14 when he said that he was the Lord most high, possessor of heaven and earth. God says to him, look up. Look at the stars. You know when you're going outside and observing the stars in the sky. There's about 9,096 stars up there. Now, God says if you can count them. So that's not that big of a number to count, is it? 9,000 descendants, well, that wouldn't be that many people. But we know from our understanding of the universe that there's a lot more stars than 9,000. When you look at the stars in the Milky Way alone, there are 100 billion stars in the Milky Way. And then when you expand that out to the observable universe, there is one billion trillion stars in our universe. I mean, that's a huge number. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever counted to a billion? I looked up how long that would take. 36 years. So imagine trying to count all the stars in the Milky Way, 100 billion, 3,600 years. We ain't got enough time for that, do we? But God's point is not that Abram would populate the planet thousands of times over, like bacterial, like fecundity or something like that. His point is to remind Abram of his own words, I am the God who created the stars. You're worried about your age 
and whether or not you'll be able to reproduce. And I am the God who spoke and everything came into existence. Maybe that's something you need to hear this morning. Maybe there's a a problem that's weighing so deeply upon you that you wonder if the problem is too big for God. I want to challenge you to do something. Go out tonight. We live on beautiful Cape Cod. Sit on the beach. Look up at the night sky and just start counting. Sometimes the argument is so strong that you just need to say, enough said. In verse 6, the Bible tells us that Abram says, enough said. Abram believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. Now this is one of the most profound, important verses in all of the Bible. He doesn't expect for Abram to be able to live a perfect life. He knows that Abram can't live a perfect life. He's a sinner just like you and me, inherited a a sin problem from his first parents, Adam and Eve, just like you and I inherited a sin problem from them. But God wants Abraham to do is to trust, to rely upon, to believe his good promises. To believe means to rest your entire weight upon the truth of what someone has to say. So much so that God wants us to rely upon his word to the point that if his word isn't true, we're not going to heaven. Abram, or God, counted Abram as righteous because of his faith. That word counted could also be translated credited. What does it mean to be righteous? Well, it means to be morally perfect. If you're trying to kind of pass God's moral test, His expectation upon your life is moral perfection. And I got to tell you, none of us are passing that test. But what if God could choose to credit us as righteous? Now we wouldn't have to pass the test. Basically, God could say, Abram, since you are living by faith in my promises, I will add or credit to your account my righteousness. And that's the argument that the New Testament writers make about the life of faith. You see, they look back to this story with Abraham and see that that people have always and can ever only receive salvation by God's grace through faith. You can't do enough good things to earn God's favor. Anyone that attempts to do that fails the test. But Paul says this in Romans 4, 13 to 16. Clearly God's promise to give the whole earth to Abram and his descendants was based not on his obedience to God's law, but on a right relationship with God that comes by faith. If God's promise is only for those who obey the law, then faith is not necessary and the promises are pointless. For the law always brings punishment on those who try to obey it. The only way to avoid breaking the law is to have no law to break. So the promise is received by faith. It is given as a free gift. And the object of your faith is more important than the faith itself. Whoever asks you to rest your entire weight upon them must be big enough to carry your weight, right? This pulpit, not big enough for me. So what if you believe someone, you place all of your faith in them, you put all of the load upon them, and they fail, they let you down? 
well then your faith has failed. You are not big enough to carry the load of your own burden, your own sin problem, your own need to live eternal life. There is only one who is ever big enough to carry the weight of that burden on his shoulders. And his name was Jesus. Scripture says in Acts 4.12, there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. Do you hear that? Don't rest your burden on anyone else. Only Jesus can handle that burden. Have you trusted him? As we make our way forward in this dialogue as it progresses, Abram's concern moves from God's delivery of a son to God's delivery of the promise of the land. There were two things that God had promised. Verses seven and eight. And God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I will take possession of it? So Abram, though he has trusted God, though he's believed in him, relied upon him, is still asking questions about the mechanics, right? How is this going to happen? And so God cuts a, a covenant with him. He makes a deal with him. He pledges himself. Now, when we're making a deal with people, we get out paper, we make a contract, we pay lawyers a lot of money, then we sign paper, and then we notarize it, then we take it out to the courthouse, it gets approved, and then, you know, hopefully the government approves it. But in Abram's day, they didn't have these courthouses and they didn't really have paper. So they made deals in a more uh, memorable way, something that when people witnessed it, they would remember the nature of it. They would cut a covenant. Verses 9 and 10 explains the graphic nature of this ceremony. He said to them, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. So this is a a gory, bloody, death-filled ceremony, isn't it? Verse 11 tells us that birds of prey are attracted to the gore and Abram scares them away. They would call this cutting a covenant because those animals were cut in two, laid apart, and the two parties making the covenant would hold hands and, and walk in between the animal parts outlining the covenant as they went. Essentially saying that if I don't keep my end of the bargain, may this happen to me. I mean, that's a strong deal, isn't it? So as this is all taking place in verses 13 to 16, God makes a sevenfold prophecy explaining the nature of this covenant and how the promise would come about. It's a, a future-oriented prophecy that involves suffering. Seven points to it. That first, Abram's descendants would sojourn down in Egypt. And then second, that they would be enslaved by the Egyptians. That this oppression would last for 400 years and then that God would judge the Egyptians and then Israel would leave with great possessions. He tells Abram to bring comfort to him that you won't experience this. This is future-oriented. Your head will go down in peace. And then seventh, that after this 400-year period, then these descendants would enter into the land. And while God is making this amazing prophecy, verse 12 tells us that Abram's in a sedated state. He can only watch and he can only hear what is happening. Verses 17 to 21. 
When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, a land of Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, Jebusites. So that smoke, fire pot, that flaming torch is, is a representation of the presence of God. God alone passes through the gore, the blood, and the death. Isn't that significant? He is the only one obligated to the covenant. God's not saying, Abram, if you do these things, then I'll give you a son, I'll give you a land. Uh, Abram, if you obey A, B, C, D, then I will keep my end of the bargain. No, God is saying to Abram, Abram, I'm going to give you this land. I am going to make an unconditional promise and you will receive it. It's not up to you. It's not up to your effort, your battle strategy, your initiative, your intelligence. You will get the land because I have said so. And I alone can make this happen because I alone can pass through the gore, the blood, and the death. Now let's unpack this story a little bit. I think there are some deep implications in this text, especially as we think about when we are having those second thoughts. These are principles to remember. The first principle is this. God's not afraid of your questions. Let's recall that the major ethos of this passage is a dialogue. It's a back and forth between God and Abraham. Many Christians and many people go through life and they have significant questions and concerns and fears when it comes to God and they keep them to themselves. They don't share them with God. They don't share them with other people. And I gotta tell you, it's a big mistake. When you look through the Psalter, it's laced with this beautiful poetry and expression of complaint and questions and concerns and fears. Psalm 130, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. I mean, if, if you ever felt that primal cry in your heart, God, why am I suffering? God, why am I going through this? God, are you even here right now? Or maybe you've asked the question like the psalmist asked regularly, how long, O Lord? The life of faith is a reverent dialogue with God. Abram's dialogue with God was the dialogue of friends. Isaiah 41 verse 8, God refers to Abram as my friend. The Hebrew means to have a great affection or care for or loyalty towards. Even while Abram struggled, he maintained a heart for God. He pursued God. He was invested in the relationship with God. Friend, are you invested in the relationship with God or is your relationship with God only contingent on what God is doing for you now? Are you willing to engage in the messy dialogue with him? Second principle. God knows when you are ready for his unconventional blessings. Much of Abram's promise is timing, isn't it? Isn't it true that sometimes we want God to operate on Eastern Standard Time and, and God's operating on Pacific Coast Time? I mean, 
we tend to set this ultimatum and say, God, this is when I want it, this is how I want it, and this is what it's got to look like. But God won't have an ultimatum placed on himself. The issue is this, is God in control or is God not in control? If God is in control, then he's never too early. He's never too late. He does things just when he intends to do so, and he probably has more factors involved than your own personal situation. Look at Genesis 15, verse 16. The text says, They shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God had other things to do. He had to let justice with these Canaanite peoples run its course, and he was not going to send Israel in to conquer that land one second sooner than justice demanded it. He is patient, long-suffering. Another important aspect of this conversation has to do with the fact of God's promises being future-oriented. Abram wasn't looking for a mansion here. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Hebrews 11.13 says this, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. That's the life of faith, friends. Much of the promises that God has made to you only comes about when you have passed through this life and into the next. We can only claim those promises by faith because faith covers that gap between what I can see and what I cannot see. Faith is about promises, not about explanations. Third principle, God's ultimate plan is for your good, even when the path to good includes pain. Think about that Egyptian prophecy, verses 13 to 16. 400 years of suffering before the promised land. Suffering and then glory. We hear passages like Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and it makes this bold statement, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for their good, but then we hear that and we process it and we say to ourselves, well, does that mean that when my wife died of Parkinson's that that was good, or, or that when my company went bankrupt that that was good, or uh, that the, the abuse that I, I suffered as a child, that that was good? That's not what the Bible's saying. Death, abuse, suffering, cancer, starvation, all of those things not good. All of those things are terrible. However, what the Bible is saying is that God's ultimate plan is for your good. Even if the pathway to get there includes pain, and that's an important distinction. This helps us to make sense of our pain because when we think of our lives as being guided by the sovereign hand of God and, and God's constructing out of your life this beautiful mosaic that will complete a good finished picture. And some of those tiles in life include light moments of joy and exuberance and brilliance, right? But other moments are so dark that sometimes I wonder if it's willing, uh, worth it to keep going. But when you take a step back and you see the picture from God's eyes, the whole complete picture in his eyes is good. John Piper said these profound words on pain. Every millisecond of your pain in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory you will get because of that. 
a response must be like Abraham's, faith. Hudson Taylor was the founder of the China Inland Mission. He faced a terrible situation. It was the time of the Boxer Rebellion in China. It lasted from 1899 to 1901, and it was a violent protest against colonialism and foreign cultures and even Christianity. And so missionaries were fleeing for their lives to leave the country. People were being captured, killed. And as Taylor is watching all of this unfold, his, his heart is in such deep anguish that he can't even pray. In his diary, he was processing the spiritual condition of his heart. And he said, I can't read. I can't think. I can't pray, but I can trust. Sometimes that's all you've got in the moment. You just trust. But the real question is, can you trust God? Let's look at our last principle. God walked through the gore for Abram, right? He walked through that blood, that gore, and that death. Abram couldn't walk through that. Remember, this is a bargain that if you don't keep your end of the bargain, you die. (laughs) Abram couldn't keep his end of the bargain. He couldn't be perfect according to God's moral standards. So God has to walk through the gore alone in order to meet the obligations of the covenant for Abraham. And that's just what Jesus did for us on the cross. He walked through the gore, the blood, the death of the cross. He suffered the jeers, the ridicule, the spitting upon, uh, the flogging upon his back, uh, the, the running away of his disciples, the abandonment that he had felt, the loneliness of the cross, the, the pouring of his blood for the sins of the world on that cross for you. And Jesus was the only one who could walk that path because he was the only one with shoulders that were big enough to carry the weight of the burden of sin. Galatians chapter 3, verses 11 to 14. It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. You don't want to walk that path. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abram might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Recently, um, I was sitting around a fire with my friend Jeremy Anderson and another friend of ours, and as we were dialoguing around the fire, we started talking about God and faith. And this friend uh, really didn't believe in God, didn't really know much about where he stood with God. But anyway, over the course of the conversation, Jeremy was brilliant. He shared his testimony about how he really didn't know God and then he'd come to faith and wove the gospel message into his testimony. And as we were having this dialogue about theological, philosophical, big questions, one of the questions that this friend of ours wanted to know is, why would Jesus have to die on the cross for someone else? That's an important question. And the answer is, 
Jesus was the only one who could walk that path because he was the only one who was righteous enough in God's eyes, the only one who could bear the weight of the responsibility of sins upon his shoulder, and the only one who could pass from death to life for us. Friends, more and more I'm convinced that the fundamental question of life is, is God good and can I trust him to do what is right? If the answer to that question is yes, then I can face anything that this world throws at me. If the answer to that question is no, then, well, if I have faith, I'm no better off than people who do not have faith. But if Jesus would go through, would walk through the blood, the gore, the death of the cross for you, don't you think that the answer to the question is indeed yes? Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer?